Well, to begin the message today, as we start a new series on the greatest gift ever given, and really we're heading back to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1 begins with generations being listed, and so I thought it was, since I heard this story, it would be a good thing to be able to just start with a story about generations. So I'm going to ask if Tom Frankie would come forward and just share a little bit about, um, uh, when he shared this with me, I thought, well, this would be something that would be kind of a, a fun thing for you to hear about, because God is invested in every generation, and one of the things that we seek to do here is to worship together with all the generations present. So why don't you share with us a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Thanks, Kevin. I'm a public school teacher, and I'm not used to a microphone, so this is a foreign object for me. <laughs> yeah. um, my name is Tom Frankie. I was born and raised in a conservative Baptist church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and third generation. My dad was born there. My grandfather and grandmother attended there. And sitting in church with three generations of Frankies was a, kind of what it was for all of my friends. We vacationed together as families. My mom was a children's ministry uh, leader downstairs during the mornings. My dad uh, taught adult Sunday school class, led the college and career age group at night, played the piano uh, during Sunday morning services, and was a deacon. We were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. It was just the way that it was. And I intended fully to live my life in that church, go off to Wheaton College, graduate two years ahead of Kevin, and then... <laughs> not because you're smarter, I don't think. Was it? Or maybe it was. I, I don't know. No, anyway. <laughs> you were a geek. I don't even know if I knew you. <laughs> and come back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and practice medicine with my father and grow old in that church. But God had other plans for me. And I wound up in graduate school here in Minnesota instead and then spent the next bunch of years as a single guy uh, involved with a church plant and uh, thinking this is where I was going to be until I became we. And I met my wife and we became married and uh, much later in life than normal and had kids. And as we were trying to find a place to raise a family, we looked to join God where he was working. Uh, Harold Blackby's book, Experiencing God, describes finding where God is working and joining in that work. And we found a secret church and got involved. And after a while, realized we wanted more meat for our family than what the secret message typically is, and settled in a church up the road here, and we're happy, thinking this is where we would settle for the rest of our lives. And then we got a phone call in April. My sister's family was transferred up to Detroit because her husband had to move when the airlines merged. My mom and dad had retired down in Knoxville, and that meant they would no longer have family near. My parents with the choice of living in L.A. or living in Detroit or living in Minnesota were stuck with the choice, where would we go or should we just stay in Knoxville? My dad hates winter, and I knew that he would never come here, but must have surprised in April. My mom called up and said, Tom, would you find a house for us? We'd like to move up by you guys. We had just heard a message a couple of years before entitled Finishing Well. And what it meant to my wife and I was an opportunity for my wife and I to help my mom and dad finish the race that God had set before them, to help them finish their race well. So finding a home meant finding a home to live and finding a home to worship. And the place that we were attending did not feel like the best place for my mom and dad to finish. So we thought, well, let's check out Wayzata Free. My daughters went to preschool downstairs here. My neighbors were members of this church before they moved to Texas. My wife is from an evangelical free background. I knew about this church, and I've known Kevin for 10 years. As a good friend, 
And I've enjoyed his teaching ministry. And I thought, well, we'll come here and check it out. When they brought my mom here in April, they looked around and said, wow, there's a lot of people with gray hair here. My parents will fit right in. <laughs> I looked at myself in the mirror and said, I'm going to fit in here, too. I don't see any of them. They're there. They're there. Okay, I see in the beard. Anyway. And I looked and I thought, well, look, there's some friends of mine up in the congregation. I know some people here. Oh, look at those girls over there. They swim with my daughters in the swim team. This may be a place where we could come. I brought my mom and dad to church when they moved up here in August, and I thought, there's a choir here. My dad will like that. My dad played the piano for years. He'll enjoy the big concert grand you have up here. My dad will enjoy the teaching. My dad will find there's a large Sunday school class of people his age where they can worship together. I think they might be happy. And best of all, we could sit in the pew with three generations of Frankies like I was raised. My mom and dad, my wife, and my daughters. The greatest gift that was given to, my, to me was annual mission conferences in Milwaukee when the missionaries stayed at our house. My mom and dad gave me a global view of the world by having missionaries stay in our home for sometimes up to a week and did that twice a year. This church has a heart for missions. My parents will like that. I like that. My daughters will have an opportunity to serve locally. And I thought this would be a good place, a multi-generational home, where my children, my wife and I, my mom and dad can all find a place to serve God better. Where my parents can finish the race that God set before them, my children and my wife and I can continue our race, and we can happily grow closer to God together. And best, I enjoy Kevin's teaching. I'm writing in my Bible again. (laughs) You want me to say (laughs) that? No, you're done. (laughs) Thank you. I, I was waiting this morning for Tom to show up to kind of show him what the you know, ropes we're going to have to be to, to do this thing. And, and I was saying to Andrea, who um, kind of puts all these services together, I said, you know, one thing, I, I, I know he's predictable. And I said, no, no, wait a second, he's dependable. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to say, but I do know that that touched my heart because I hadn't been in contact with Tom with regard to church. But when he just shared with me how God had allowed for him to bring the generations of his own family together, I thought, I know that's not just true for him. It's been true for others And we thank God for that. Let me pray. Father, take, I pray, these words and this message and um, help us to understand um, more fully who we are, how much you love us, and and how we can be people who love others. Uh, As your word says, as the Apostle John said over and over again, the issue here is about love. And we want to be about what that looks like as we give gifts away this year. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Matthew, if you take Matthew, he begins with a story about the generations. So you begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father, and goes on and on and on. Verse 6, I'm going to jot down. talks about, and Jesse, the father of King David, which ends one list. Then he begins the second list right in the middle of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah, Solomon, father of Rehoboam. And this is now the list of the kings. So the list of the patriarchs, list of the kings. Until we come to verse 11, where it ends this second list. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. So we move from the patriarchs to the kings to now the 
exile in Babylon. And so verse 12 begins the next list. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and goes on with a little more difficult names for those of you who want to try and read it. Begins in, and ends in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And as you read this, and as I went through this and studied this, I have to tell you, there is so much in this that we're going to just condense it down as best we can to a few of the things which I call are the marks of God's character as they are all over this genealogical record. There are all kinds of marks I could highlight, but I want to draw attention to a few and specifically to this first one, which is what I call the mark of God's sovereignty over this genealogical generational list. God's hand is on it. The Heavenly Father's fingerprints are all over this. He's the authentic, genuine, promised Savior of God. And as I looked at this, I I asked myself, why does he begin with this genealogy? Why present the lineage? Why the very first thing out of the books? You know you're supposed to tell a good joke or some kind of poem or something to start, you know, the story, right? And what kind of attention getter is this? Well, it grabs the attention of the Jew. It grabs the attention of the people in that day. Genealogical lists were incredibly important. And as we look at this and study this and look further into this, the Heavenly Father had promised to send a Savior for all nations, and He had promised that it would come through Abraham and that it would then follow through the descendant of the first king over that whole kingdom, at least the first king who was the godly man, David, And he wants us to know right from the get-go, and he wants those people reading, and especially Jews who Matthew wrote this gospel to, that this is authentic. The greatest gift that has ever been given to creation and mankind is the real deal. It's genuine. Matthew points to the Messiah's origin. In origin, Jesus, the Messiah, is tied to the origin That's where you get that word origin. Original. And that original one was was Abraham himself, the founder of the people of God. So that's why he begins there. Because that's what they're concerned about. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you'll see way back in the very first part of the books of the Bible, in Genesis, God calls Abraham. And it it says in verse 1, God told Abraham, leave your country, your family, your father's home for a land that I will show you. He's going to take from the people, the the race of humanity. He's going to take one person and build a nation around it and show himself and reveal himself so that ultimately through Abraham, he would reveal himself to all people so that as he blesses Abraham, all people would be blessed. So he says in verse 2, I will make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I'll curse. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so as you look at Matthew verse 1 of the first chapter, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the original, tied back to the son of Abraham. 
And that's where he begins in verse 2, Abraham, and he begins to draw down the line so you can follow this path. And Matthew continues down the list till he gets to verse 6. And then he gives a second list. And there's another truth about the sovereign hand of God in this. Not only has he, he tied it back and you see the sovereignty of God through Abraham and the promise that this blessing would become a blessing to the whole world. He now says in, in verse 6, this sovereign hand is on the Messiah because you see it also. This Messiah comes from the great king that I told you about. Not only original to Abraham, but the Messiah is authentic because he's a descendant of David. Coming from the royal line of David, just as God had promised. If you listen to the promise of David, look at Second Samuel, and I'll give you these scriptures, 7, verses 12 and 16. Here, again, you see the fingerprints of God all over this. He says in verse 12, when your days, he's talking here to David, are over and you rest with your ancestors. This is when you're, you're dead in God, David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. Your house, he's talking now about those who will follow me. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me, and your throne will be established forever. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, these next verses, you see Isaiah foresaw this son as well, some 600 years before the birth of Christ. He says in verse 6, and we read this as a call to worship, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now if you walk and kind of past these verses and just get down to verse 7, the last part, he says he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God in his sovereign power will bring this to fulfillment. Which is an interesting thing, just to stop for a second and say the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is not Israel. They're not going to be the ones. They're not going to try and figure it out and somehow make it happen. In fact, everything they did started to work against us. This is not about the leadership making this happen. This is not by power nor by might, but by, what? by the Spirit of God. He will make it happen. When God wants to do something, He will do it. So I just want to stop for a second in your life. If God is speaking to you, your heart is opening, and He begins to promise to you. He begins to start to work in your life. He begins to impregnate you with this Holy Spirit. It is His energy and His zeal that will bring that about as you participate and respond to Him. So Luke traces this, if you look at this lineage, if you go to Luke, he has a genealogy, but not till about chapter 3. He gets a little further into the, the Gospels before he starts bringing up the genealogy. And he does it specifically for a different reason. He relates it not back to Abraham, but all the way to Adam, because he's writing a book to the Gentiles. He wants them to know that Jesus was not just given to, to the Jews. He wants them to know that the blessing was to be to the whole world, to all humanity. So he goes all the way back to Adam. And he traces this, interestingly, Luke does, through Mary's line. But Matthew, he's tracing this through the line of Joseph. And he's tracing it through what I would call a royal line. Matthew presents a lineage of David's kingly descendants, which go through Solomon and ultimately come through Joseph. But if you look at Luke's, neither Solomon, Solomon nor Joseph, as you go through it, are blood relations of Jesus. So you have two different lineages with some different names in it. And you have to ask yourself, what's this about? Well, see, Luke is actually showing Mary's bloodline. Matthew has a different purpose. 
He wants to show you the sovereign hand of God on the life of this Messiah who comes from Abraham, who then comes from David. And he's showing you specifically he is the king to come. And he's presenting a royal bloodline, which had to be a male line. But it's not a bloodline in the way we think of it. Matthew's royal lineage was common. The way that they would do this when they would look at kings was very common in the ancient world. And if you think about it, even to a degree today, you think about royal lineage and you think of what's happening in England, probably the closest parallel that we have. In the British monarchy, when the throne succession jumps to another part of a family by default, as when there's an abdication or there's no heir, they trace the royal line in that way. So there's an actual bloodline, and then there's also a line that is by blood, but from time to time it doesn't go from father to son, but it jumps to an uncle or it jumps to whoever the next heir because of abdication, or in some sense there isn't an heir present. And so that's what you see in, in, the, two, in the two accounts. And there's a reason why Matthew wants to show the royal line, the kind of the monarchy line. Because here's his point. Jesus is the descendant, and his throne comes... From David. Now, what you see in the Word of God is that you see both lines, which is a pretty amazing thing. You have the line of Mary all the way back to David, which is a bloodline, and then you have the royal line of Matthew. And that's why when you look at this story, you also see the story of Christ that um, they have to travel back to David's hometown, Bethlehem. Everything is bringing them back to this place where David who was the king, was, so that you can see again and again this line. So Matthew details the lineage through the male line because this would legally establish that Jesus has the right to the throne. And as you go through Matthew, and as we've seen, what are the Pharisees, what are the scribes always concerned about? They're always concerned about legality. They always want to make sure it's, it's legally right. And so he starts out right from the beginning. He says, let me just show you the, the line which comes from Abraham that comes through David and it's legal succession all the way to Jesus. You see, the Jewish world was into this whole idea of genealogy. You had to have the right pedigree to rule. You had to have that line very clearly demonstrated. So that's why he begins with this. And it catches their attention. See, in that day, they didn't have DNA testing. It was in an age when they were looking for a world ruler. The, 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 the world was looking for one who would come. And it was in a time, and if you read back in that time, it was filled with all kinds of imposters. So authenticity was crucial. That's why Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogical record detailing the lineage of Jesus and trying, really tying it specifically to David. He wants all his readers to know from the first page that the appearance of Jesus was no accident. That it occurred in the fullness of time under the sovereignty of God. And that his fingerprints are all over this. The king as he starts out in this very first line of genealogy, has come. He is here. He is a baby. He's arrived. Each generation, time has marched toward a purpose. The word God spoke in the past to Abraham, that he spoke to David, that he spoke to Isaiah, are now fulfilled, and the time has arrived. 
And then if you note this, here's one last thing that Matthew does to show authenticity. I think I could show you a couple other things, but this is kind of a, an interesting one because he's, at, he's actually arguing in verse 17 with his way he sums it up, which is called a rabbinic argument. It doesn't mean a lot necessarily to us. In fact, we sometimes have people who, who will argue this way with things. But in, this day, in that day, this kind of argument meant a lot to the rabbis. So he uses his rabbinic method to seal his point. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew, the tax collector, accountant, loves numbers. He's really good with them. He finds a symmetry in this genealogy, and he divides it neatly into three sections of 14 generations each. The first two lists of these 14 generations can really be found quite easily if you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and 3 or even to Ruth chapter 4. It lists all the different names. And specifically, they know that Matthew was using Septuagint because his names line up with the Greek Old Testament. You see, in that day, the Hebrew Old Testament was, was translated into Greek years before Christ came because there were so many people who had been scattered abroad into these, lang- into these other places. And Greek was like English. It was the common language. So they would read that. He took those first two lists and he was able to very clearly delineate from those accounts. But now you get to the exile, the third list. And in, in, in this last list, the exile from that, po- that, that, that time of the exile to the time of Christ, you don't have Old Testament documentation. So where did he go? And, and be, due to the intense need to, to know your lineage, in that time, they kept really good records. So it's quite clear he went to lots of different public records to be able to, to follow and trace this. There's, there's authors, one is Josephus, back in that time, who traces his lineage, lineage through a public record. But what is really interesting is that today, no 21st century Jew can prove he or she is a direct descendant of David. Because when God allowed Rome to come through and completely demolish the temple and the land of Israel, so also were all those public records. And through the Holocaust over the years, those records have been completely destroyed. So it's very interesting that the last person that has the ability to actually track his genealogical record back to David as the king and back to Abraham is Jesus. And, 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 and Matthew is laying this out, and the hand of God, you can see, is even on this. So verses 2 through 6 is Abraham to David. Verses 6 through 11 is David to the Babylon exile. Verses 12 through 16, the Babylonian exile to Jesus. And you ask, why 14 generations of each? And there's a number of reasons to do that. One of them is really a simple thing that they would do in that day. They would take and they would have to memorize lists. How many have tried to memorize grocery lists when you're driving in the car and your wife has called you? Do you categorize them in some way? Do you use letters, or do you maybe, this is the fruit department, this is the meat, however you do it. Well, they knew it was easier to memorize something if you were able to go 3 and 14, 3 and 14, and you could look at it and go, oh, Abraham the patriarchs, David the kings, Babylon the exile. And so for a preliterate oral culture, writers would purposely group these lists numerically to help with memorization. But there's a deeper reason, even, that he does this. 
And it goes back to this whole thing of it being rabbinic. They used rabbinic arithmetic. Numbers and symbols were very important. My uh, New Testament uh, professor at Trinity Seminary, Don Carson, writes in his commentary, In the ancient world, letters served not only as the building block of words, but also as symbols for numbers. Hence, any words had a numerical value, and the use of such symbolism is known as gematria. In Hebrew, David, which is the consonants, D, which would be W in the Hebrew, and D, D would equal 4, W would equal 6, and D would equal 4. The vowels of the letter, of those letters, add up to 14. So that was, for him, another way, for those who are rabbinic in nature, they're looking at it, and they didn't use the vowels, they just used consonants. D equaling 4, 6 is the W, and D, or the V, if we would say in English, equal 14. And so what he's doing is building... it's scripture is so much more complex and detailed than we even understand. And as he's presenting this to those people, he's just trying to make it so clear that God's sovereign hand is over this in every way you can imagine. Even down to the numbers. Your king has come. And then he shares one other thing. Really, too. And um, I'll share these if I can. Not only is it God's sovereignty, but as you look at this list, he wants you to remember this king who comes, comes not to kind of wrap his, his, his hand around your neck and say, straighten up. But he comes because no, he knows we're damaged goods, and he says, I've come to give you grace. So, so Matthew wants to include something in here, because as you look at this, it's not only marked by God's sovereignty, but it's marked by God's grace. A curious feature in Matthew's genealogy is the mention in verses 2 through 5 of three women. This is not common in any way. Verse 3, Tamar, says the mother of Perez and Zerah, which were probably twins. Verse 5, Rahab, the mother of Boaz. Verse 5 again, Ruth, the mother of Obed. See, women's names did not normally appear in Jewish um, genealogies. It was a patriarchal culture, and so you would just have those listed that were the men of that line. But what's even more interesting here is for a legal lineage, you had to have just male names listed, and so they never would list those of women. But Matthew draws attention purposely to the grace of God by listing these women and these unexpected unions that were not just of women, but they were three outcasts. God surprises everybody, and Matthew includes into his family a heathen Moabite, who is Ruth. And if you, I mean, I could go through the history of, of the hatred between those two people. A prostitute, Rahab, and an adulteress, Tamar. It's kind of putting in the family tree those kind of things that you don't really have to put in there. You kind of like to try and hide those blemishes. You know, it's, it's what we do all the time when we sit around. Let's say I have a wedding coming. You go, do we really have to invite crazy cousin Joe? Does really wacko Aunt Edith have to come to Christmas this year? You know, that kind of thing. 
He's basically saying, here are these people who are outside what is the normal and the expected of God. Here is this God who has come in Christ the King. And what it's marked all the way through every generation, it shows that God has extended grace. He has extended His love and forgiveness to anybody who would just say, please, God, I recognize my need of you. And if you get into the second set of generations, it starts out with a reminder that it was even, even the kings were birthed out of sin. Because he doesn't even have to mention this, but he does. He talks about David and what? His relationship with Bathsheba. God's genealogy is full of characters. And he makes no attempt to hide them. And he puts them front and center, I believe. So at Christmas time comes, we understand once again. That we once again come and say, this gift, not only does it have God's sovereign hand on it, but is full of His grace and His mercy, and He gives you hope. If you just look at the list of character God calls and uses, Abraham a liar, Jacob a deceiver, Moses a fugitive, Joshua was jealous, Gideon a coward, Samson a walking impulse control disorder, <laughs> Eli a bad father, David, David the Holy One, an adulterer. Elijah, suicidal. All the disciples were of little faith. James and John were status seekers. Peter denies Jesus three times and actually cuts a guy's ear off. And Paul says it was precisely when he felt most inadequate, most cast out from the presence of God, that the grace of God reached out and was sufficient for him. And so you go through this genealogy and you see this this sovereign hand of God with the fingerprints of God all over it. And on those fingerprints are also this acknowledgement of this God not coming with a hand to slap and to, to hurt and to scold, but He comes first and foremost to grab hold of, to hug and to hold and to say, I love you, and if you're open to it, you're willing to recognize your sin, if you're willing to stand in the presence of me and call out with your whole heart wanting to invite me into your life, I come to give you grace. And the last thing I want to share with you that I think is so, really, there's so many, but it's also marked by the Spirit of God. You see, this king comes giving grace in order to bring about the opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to take you and not leave you as you are, but to make you something far greater than you could ever imagine. Can you imagine that? I remember the day I really got real with God. I was sitting at, at this tree and I was reading the Bible. I was outside my house. It was um, like my second year, I think the summer of my, my year in college. And I was reading it. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I played a number of sports. I wasn't really the geek, Tom. You said I was. But I played a number of sports in high school. I played, I played hockey in college. Anyway, and I remember thinking to myself, I gave myself pretty fully to these things, but never with an all-out abandon. Never with an all-out abandon. And I said, God, I've come to the recognition that you need to rule in my life. And I've come to the reality that your grace is sufficient, that I couldn't even stand in your presence if it wasn't for the fact that you take outcasts, you take failures, you take people like me and you. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, God, 
There is one thing I want to abandon myself so totally to, and that is you. That your Holy Spirit would begin to just move in me and rule through me. And that someday, God, I would be able to look back at my life and say, I didn't, I didn't withhold anything from you. Now, it's a long journey of learning the things that I do withhold. And it, it, it doesn't just automatically, automatically happen. But if you have never given yourself so totally full, where you have said, I abandon myself because I know that you, God, are a ruler. And I know that you give me grace. I don't deserve this. But I stand here today, this morning... And I am going to give you the greatest gift that I could ever give. I'm going to give you my whole life and let your Holy Spirit rule through me. Well, here's what's so cool about this. Jesus is not only marked by, his sovereignty, by the sovereignty of God and the grace of God, but by his Holy Spirit. These aberrations of grace through the list of women that Matthew is using to fortify basically this last point, which is the most unexpected, surprising work of grace to cap off the list. If you read the words and understand the implication of Matthew's day, it has to, to their minds, they couldn't understand it, they couldn't believe it. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This lands with a shock. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus. This is so unheard of in a, 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 a line that falls down to the Messiah. But here is Jesus, born of a woman, and yet born so totally full of the Holy Spirit. Mary, a virgin... He gives birth supernaturally. And the Spirit of God and His fingerprints are all over this child. So much so that the Heavenly Father's fingerprints are now, as you look at Jesus, the actual fingerprints of God in flesh. And, and what I love about this is, is, if you go back to this first verse in Matthew 1, the actual Greek word means biblos genesis. And when you, when you look at these words in the Hebrew, they go back to chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis and chapter 5, verse 1. Those are the exact two words that are in the Greek Septuagint. Those words Matthew is specifically using there because those two words in Genesis talk about their fact that there is a new era that God has created, this new set of, hum- this, this set of humanity that has come, and it was spoiled, and it was damaged, but now he's brought his Savior, his son Jesus, and it, he says basically, Matthew says, a new era has come, and here's the era. It is the king who has come to take and deal with your sin, to forgive you, to give you grace, and all of himself through his Holy Spirit. Never before had that been. You know what? The Holy Spirit was hovering over creation. It was hovering over creation, waiting for the time that he would be released in the lives of every person who's open to receive him. I, I, I look at that and I go, that is the most cool thing. You have this age that occurred back in Genesis waiting for this new age to occur that happened in this new era when the king came who gave grace to anybody who wanted it so that the Holy Spirit who had been, who had been held back, he only showed up in a few people's lives. But he basically says, any heart here today catch this, any heart here today that is open and says, Spirit of God, come in and impregnate me with the works of God he is willing to do. He will transform your life. 
And I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately. I can tell you, though, from my own experience, that as you give yourself over to God, you will go through times of suffering. You will go through difficulty. This is not a sign up and get blessed right away experience. This is a a promise that you will be blessed for eternity, beginning this day. But you will, because God loves you so much, He will begin to bring things into your life. You will do stupid things that will bring things into your life. And yet, if you walk with Him, He will begin to transform the very person you are, your character, so that you become a new person, that you create an environment in your home with your, your your spouse and your children, that you begin to walk in a new way that where you go to work, that work environment changes. You become people of God. This is what the gospel's all about. This is what Matthew is excited about. So it is not some little silly thing that he begins with. He begins by this explosive list of a king who gives grace with the Spirit waiting to be unleashed in your life as you walk day and day with Him. So what does it mean practically? If God can oversee His promise to bring His Messiah through each and every generation, even in spite of us, cannot God oversee your situation? You have been given the greatest gift ever so that through you, you can give the greatest gift to others. So think about it a second. We have a Christmas tree with presents and Jesus is available to everyone through his Holy Spirit. What if the fruit of the spirit of peace really took hold in your life? What if you decided this year to be a part of this Christmas conspiracy and said instead of Spending more and getting a whole lot more gifts for people who don't need them. What if I chose to give the kind of gift that the person or the people around me are craving? They're craving. And so you come to God and you say, God, my heart is so anxious and so fearful. It's been this way for so long. It seems to consume me, whether it's a job, child, health, whatever. But this day... This day, God, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask with all my being that your peace so lands within me that my peace begins to grow so that I become, for those around me, an anchor of your peace. And I'm going to quit spending money on things people don't want and start giving the things that people crave. What, what if the gift you chose to give this year wasn't the one where you went and, and you bought another gift, but you, you said, Holy Spirit of God, begin to work in my character, begin to, to work in me, because I, you know, I, I am a kind of person that, you know, I'm not the, the real faithful, dependable type of person. I, I say this, and I give this word here, and it's not really fully my word, but, but God, what if I gave this gift to people around me, and when they heard my word, they could believe it? Yeah, raise your hand, because some of you know exactly that's the way it is with some of your spouses. What if you began to say, God, I am going to begin to give this gift. Instead of something that costs me a whole lot of money and I get another diamond for another whatever, to try and, and, and you know, give flowers to make someone a little more happy. What if, what if I said the greatest gift I could give you this year is I am going to be a person filled with joy. No matter what the circumstance, because I know that God has His fingerprints all over it, even when I can't see His fingerprints on my life. Because of what His Word has to say, I know it's not missing. I may not be able to see it, 
but you know it's there. It's, it's that whole idea that when you can't see his hand, you trust what? His heart. Well, I just, you could go through all the fruits of the Spirit and begin to say, God, is there a certain gift that I'm to give someone this year? But I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to say, God, I recognize that you have given everything you could. You have given the greatest gift you could ever give, and you have given me yourself to rule. You have told me that I am acceptable because of what I've done and by grace. And you have unleashed your Holy Spirit in this age in a way that has never been seen before. And now I ask the Spirit of God, come in me and do this. I ask you to bow your head with your heart quiet before God. I believe the Holy Spirit of God is waiting to give you a gift today. And you have an opportunity to receive it. And you have a responsibility to give it. Would you receive it, unwrap it, and give it to someone else?